Hey everyone, welcome back to another week of Bible Study Fellowship. Up this week, the book of Nahum and Zephaniah. Let me pray for us and we will get started. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the opportunity to be in your word. Uh, thank you, Lord, for giving us information about the future. Not only that the future is in your hands, but that everything is unfolding according to your will and to your desire. Lord, as we look at the book of Nahum and Zephaniah, I pray that you would give us confidence that your plans for the future uh, are for our good and for your glory. May we be confident in what you're doing in this world. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I wonder if uh, any of you have seen, you know, in the news or in a science book or somewhere, a trend line. Uh, we have, you know, if you gather data and you want to plot it onto a graph and you're trying to understand what's the pattern, what's the, what's the trend, what does this information tell us? How can we average it out, understand it, and begin to make some assumptions about what might happen with future data gathering? Uh, trend lines uh, are often something that, that people will do to uh, allow this, to, to look forward and backward in a range of data to understand what might happen uh, as temperatures of the earth uh, increase year after year. What's going to happen as we extend that out 12, 15, 20, 30, 100 years from now? That's a lot of the basis of global warming is, is based upon trend lines. Perhaps you've seen uh, things in the news where it's been talking about uh, the, the, the rate of inflation and what's going to happen to the price of eggs or the price of whatever if we continue to have 13 or 14 percent inflation that happens and they'll they'll base that graph or that data on a trend line and the the major assumption behind a trend line is that uh, the data that we're going to see in the future is going to be explainable or understandable in the same way that the data is today the patterns are going to continue to unfold in future events, in future days, as they do today. And, and, and we begin to think that we have an understanding or a way to predict the future based upon what has happened uh, in the past and in the present. Um, you know, we, we, we make these assumptions as we go through our lives and we think about our savings account or our retirement plans. We look at, well, here's, you know, the way that you've saved money over the course of your life and here's interest rates and here's what's going to happen in the stock market. And so in 30 years, you'll have enough money to retire. And, and again, these are, these are good things. These are helpful things for us. But again, they make the major presumption that, that the patterns that we've seen in the past and the patterns that we've, that we see in the present are going to carry through into the future. And I think that uh, operating from the premise or from the, 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 the position of a trend line is the way that the people of Nahum and Zephaniah's time operated. They had sort of seen the way that their lives had unfolded, and they presumed that it would continue in much that same pattern. Uh, the At this time, the Assyrians were the major global power. They were... They had already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and so you know they probably assumed as a nation they would continue this pattern of global conquest, of conquering cities, of having the war machine move forward into new places, into new areas, until more and more of the known world was under the control of Assyria. The people of Jerusalem probably figured that their fate would end up being much the same as the northern kingdom of Israel. Perhaps they'd be able to resist a siege on their city for a time, 
but eventually their ultimate uh, capture of the city and being taken into captivity by the hands of the Assyrians was it was just a, something that was going to happen. It was just a question of when. The nations around the land of Israel had probably figured that you know their ability to work treaties, uh, to broker deals, uh, to, to manage whatever nation had risen to prominence would continue to work. They had, they dealt with the Egyptians when they had come through and it had, had taken over possession of much of the, of the world. They were managing how to deal with the Assyrians. And, you know, people probably assume that the way that we've been doing things will continue to work for us. Uh, because we understand the way that the patterns of life are going to unfold into the future. And I think one of the things that Nahum and Zephaniah remind us as, as followers of God, as God's people, is that trend lines fail to account for the ways that God reaches into history and, and unfolds uh, patterns, processes, uh, unexpected events that he has orchestrated, that he has ordained. Uh, and so while trend lines can be useful, trend lines fail to consider God. God is not sitting back and merely watching how the events of human history uh, unfold and waiting to see what's going to happen next. Next, Instead, God uh, at times very clearly reaches into human history and establishes his true sovereignty, or at least he establishes in a way that we really can see it. Uh, and as we look at the way uh, that God speaks to the Assyrians and speaks of their downfall, in the, not only in the book of Nahum, but often, uh, to, some, often in, to some extent in the book of Zephaniah, uh, I think we can learn uh, that God governs the events of past, present, and future. So we're going to take a look at the book of Nahum. Uh, it's located in your Bible right after Micah. And right before Habakkuk, those directions might not be helpful to you at all, but we're going to look at Nahum chapter 1. Uh, first of all, what we want to realize is that Nahum is a prophet of God. We get a very brief intro, intro to him in Nahum 1, chapter 1, verse 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. So this is really the second prophet that we've seen who's been dealing with the nation of Assyria. Jonah also went and preached in the great city of Nineveh. We read about Jonah quite a few weeks ago. Uh, That story is very familiar to many people, but remember that Jonah was originally sent to speak a, a prophetic message against the city of Nineveh, which is now the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, we, we see a similar prophetic message that God speaks through the prophet Nahum to that same city, to that same people. This is quite a few years later. We don't know exactly all the timing of either Jonah or Nahum, uh, but it does appear that Nahum is after Jonah. And at this point in history, Assyria has arisen as a major power. Nahum starts off his prophecy by revealing information to us about what the wrath of God looks like. If we look at verses uh, 2 through 8, we get a, a picture or an idea of what God's wrath is like. Uh, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. God is slow to anger. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. 
and the Lord will by no means clear the guilt. Those are verses 2 and 3. Uh, Nahum begins to use uh, some some metaphors to help us understand God's wrath. He uses in uh, verse 3 the whirlwind and the storm. Verse 4, he talks about drought and major changes to oceans. Verse 5, he mentions earthquake, and I take it as volcanoes. When, when mountains melt, we get like things like lava, and so I think of that as being a volcano or something like a volcano. Verse 6, we see that God's wrath is poured out like fire, rocks break, uh, and in verse 8, there's this concept of an overwhelming flood. We probably lack uh, the understanding of what God's wrath is truly like. And so all of these climactic disasters wrapped together are, are Nahum's way to give us some understanding of what the wrath of God looks like. We also get a, a sense from Nahum that God's wrath, God's God's actions when he takes them are effective uh, this is in verses uh, 9 through 14. Uh, what do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Uh, as God carries out his plan of action against those who have, who have gotten the attention of his ire, his plan will be complete. His plan will be effective. And we can see Nahum unfolding that for us through verses 14. Uh, two verses that sort of stand out as, as differences in this section is verse 7 and verse 15. Uh, in verse 7, Nahum speaks and he reminds us that the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And then again in verse 15, as the chapter ends, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So in the midst of uh, these words of God's wrath and God's effective wrath being poured out on enemies, we have these two verses that remind us that uh, God does stand for his people as a place of refuge, uh, and God does intend to bring good to the nation of Judah. And so one of the questions you might be wondering is, why is God so upset at the nation of Nineveh, at the Assyrians? What is it that they have done uh, to, to get God to be so focused upon them? If we glean some of the verses from throughout the book, we can get a little bit of a picture as to what some of the problems were that God had with Nineveh. If you look at verse 11, you can see that there was someone from Nineveh that plotted evil against the Lord. Uh, look at verse 14, Nineveh is vile. Chapter 3, verse 1, the city is full of lies. The city has preyed upon other nations, other peoples. In uh, chapter 3, verse 19, uh, there is a mention of unceasing evil. As we go into chapter, so that's part of the reason, you know, why is God upset at the nation of Nineveh? We know that idol worship was uh, very prevalent and present in the city. Uh, but we're going to keep going through this and looking at some of the words that God has for the nation of Nineveh, for the city of Nineveh, and to understand more about um, why uh, God is frustrated with this nation and ultimately is going to bring about their destruction. So chapter 2, if we look at verses 1 through 13, uh, this is a picture of, of what the destruction of the city of Nineveh is going to look like. 
The scatterer who's come up against you, verse 1, man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect your strength. Why? For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. And so God is restoring the nation of Israel. He is restoring the city of Judah, the city of Jacob. He is restoring Jerusalem, and part of that means the destruction of the city of Nineveh. Uh, as we read through some of the details of uh, this destruction, uh, the soldiers in red, the river gates, the slave girls being carried off, the towers, uh, this is capturing some of the way that Nineveh and the Assyrian army had operated, and when they conquered other cities, other nations, other towns, uh, they would uh, they would they were very effective uh, soldiers. They would tear down walls, and then as they defeated the enemies, they would off they would carry off great amounts of plunder, and they would also carry off the people. Some people they carried off uh, for the primary purpose of killing them. Some people they carried off to be captives or, uh, you know, to be uh, farmers in other parts of the uh, other parts of the Assyrian Empire. We can see that uh, the slave girls were lamenting because they were being the mistresses, the the women of the city were being carried off by uh, someone uh, as the city of Nineveh is destroyed. But this is very much the way that the Assyrian army would have treated foreign nations as they were captured. We know from history that the city of Nineveh was plundered at least twice, one time by the Babylonians in roughly 616 BC, and we also know that uh, it was plundered again by the Medes in 612 BC. But the reason that the city of Nineveh was overthrown and, and whether the events of chapter two are supposed to, you know, present the Babylonian or the, 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 the Mede capture, it doesn't matter. Uh, verse 13 is the reason that the city is under siege. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. When the Lord is against you, uh, there is no one that will be able to help you stand. Uh, there's no political alliance. There's no clever way that you're going to be able to outsmart the Lord. And so uh, the Lord is wrathful, and his hand is against Nineveh, and that is the reason that they experienced some of the turmoil and uh, the plundering that happened in, in chapter 2. Uh, ultimately, if we look as, if we continue on in the, in the story uh, or in the passage of Nahum, uh, we can see that there is additional information that, uh, that God is going to speak to the city. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Woe to the bloody city, full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, the galloping horse, the bounding chariot. Um, there's there's been a, a great brutality that the Assyrian people have uh, put under their foes as a result of their uh, uh, military conquests. Assyria was a major force in the ancient Near East, and the reality was is that they didn't use their their power, the power that was given to them, uh, partially by by God, uh, you know, fully by God, to be able to be his uh, source of judgment on the northern kingdom. But this power that they had, they they really ended up not using it for good. They they were an idolatrous nation. 
and also they they exhibited great cruelty to uh, their their conquested cities. Um, some of the the uh, the writings, Assyrian documents, uh, describe building pyramids out of the heads of the slain enemies. They would build these massive pyramids out of out of heads. Uh, they would often take the bodies of the, uh, the fallen soldiers, the killed people, and they would impale them on the stakes. Uh, they would strip the prisoners naked before they would be killed. And we see some of these patterns, uh, the heaps of corpses that are mentioned in verse 3, dead bodies without end, that, that notion of, uh, of desecrating the dead uh, after the battle. Uh, the nakedness that's mentioned as we get down uh, into, into verse 5. Um, and, and so we see that the way that Nineveh has treated her foes is the same way that God is going to treat the nation of Nineveh. In chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, uh, the city of Thebes in Egypt was conquered by the Assyrians in roughly 663 B.C. And, you know, the, the way that the people in Thebes responded to this invasion, uh, they went into hiding, um, you know, they... they tried to, they were ultimately, it, it didn't work, they were, their infants were dashed against the rocks, the people of Thebes were consumed by the Assyrians, and the Lord is saying, that is what's going to happen to you, Assyria. God ends uh, his words through Nahum against the nation of Nineveh, city of, city of Nineveh, uh, in verse 19, there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is too grievous. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? I think that uh, you know one of the principles I want us to gather from this is is that God is in control. God is in control of human history. God is in control of uh, human present, a human future. But the way that we live, the way that we carry out our lives, matters. Uh, God is saying to the nation of Nineveh, the way that you have operated is a problem. And uh, in the same way, the decisions that you and I make matter. My, my dad would sometimes call my brother and I aside before we would go into somebody's house for dinner, right? We'd visit someone's house for dinner. My brother and I were, were young. And he would say, remember that the way that you behave reflects upon all of us. Uh, as members of the family, my brother and I had a responsibility to act well. We were still going to dinner. Dinner was dinner was going to happen. We were going to this family's house. Uh, but there were times in those places where the way that I acted brought embarrassment, probably shame to my mom and dad. And there were other times when, you know, the way that I acted was maybe neutral or perhaps brought some honor uh, to my family, but I was wondering as I thought about you know the way that we live matters um, about how God would would feel, how God would evaluate some of the ways and choices that I've made today, uh, the, the decisions that I've made, how I've chosen to spend my time, the things that I've prioritized, uh, the things that I've spent money on. Uh, what would what would God's perspective be of of those behaviors? Would God be pleased? Would God be commending? Would there be uh, something that would that I would need rebuke for? And perhaps you can contemplate how God would feel about your actions. How well have you represented, if you're a follower of God, how well have you represented God as you've carried out or lived out your day? Uh, would God commend or rebuke some of the decisions 
that you and I have made. Well, let's go ahead and flip ahead to the book of Zephaniah. Uh, the, Zephaniah is a few pages forward, right after the book of Habakkuk in your Bible is Zephaniah, uh, also a three-chapter book, and so we'll look through uh, the book of Zephaniah. Uh, Zephaniah, again, introduces himself in chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, if you don't remember from our study of 1st and 2nd Kings, Josiah was an exceptionally good king of the nation of Judah, uh, led the nation through great revival, uh, sought the Lord, discovered the book of the law, rebuilt the temple, uh, just a, a, a very devout, powerful, uh, powerful king because he believed in the Lord, trusted the Lord. Um, and this word feels harsh uh, considering what was happening in the land of Judah. So let's go ahead and take a look at uh, what the prophet Zephaniah had to say uh, to the people of, of this kingdom. If we look at uh, verses uh, uh, 2 through 6 in chapter 1, judgment is coming for the people in Judah who pursue false gods. Baal and Molech are specifically mentioned. Uh, You can see that in in those verses. And as we read through this, we start to hear about the day of the Lord, uh, the day of the Lord's judgment. This is definitely, this is judgment language. This is is end times language that we're going to hear about here, the day of the Lord. Uh, and, and we start to hear more about the day of the Lord beginning in verse 7, going through 18, and we begin to realize that not only is there going to be consequences on the day of the Lord for the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Judah, uh, chapter verse 10, on that day declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter. These are places in Jerusalem. But then as, uh, as the section goes on, we begin to see that this distress is going to come to all mankind, verse 17. I will bring distress on all mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And so this is uh, more than just judgment on the nation of Judah. This is going to be a global uh, a global time. The day of the Lord is a global event. Uh, and we can see that the fire of God's jealousy will bring about an end to all the inhabitants of the earth. Uh, and that's in uh, the end of verse uh, 18. Uh, we can see that uh, God has a word not just for the people of Judah, but he also speaks to the nations that are around uh, Judah. And we can see this in chapter 2 as we look at uh, verses 1 through 15. If you just look at some of the places that are mentioned, some of the cities or some of the the, the people, beginning in verse 4, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, uh, the Cherethites are mentioned, uh, the Philistines, Moab, Ammonites, Cushites, and even Nineveh, again, are mentioned as places where God is going to uh, begin to deal with the people in those lands. There's a there's a, a direction, an imperative direction that's given here in verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And so in the same way that these words are not more than just for Judah, uh, this, this commandment to seek the Lord is also more than just for Judah. God is calling the nations to seek him, to seek him. We begin to hear about a remnant, uh, a remnant of Judah has been 
uh, something that's come up in many of the prophetic books, and we're going to see it again here beginning in uh, chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, God has a plan for the remnant of Judah. The seacoast will become possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. And we're going to see uh, God begins to fill out more about the remnant in verse 9. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, referring to Moab. Uh, the survivors of my nation shall possess them. And so uh, God has some special plans in the works for the remnant of the nation of Judah. The remnant are the people who have sought the Lord. Uh, not those who are worshiping Baal, not those who are worshiping Molech, but those who have sought the Lord are going to be those that are part of God's ultimate remnant. There is a special emphasis on the destruction of the city of Nineveh that begins in chapter 2, verse 14, and extends down to chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, again, very similar to some of the language that we've heard uh, in uh, Nahum. Uh, it's again, the city of Nineveh is going to become a place that is fit for owls and hedgehogs back in uh, chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, and then again, we see some of the some of the problems with Nineveh and the people there. Her officials are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves and leave nothing till morning. Her prophets are fickle and treacherous men. Uh, and again, uh, the the Lord's rebuke against the people of Nineveh continues uh, through the the end of verse eight. There's a definite change of tone that happens as we get to verse nine. Uh, and it continues to the end of chapter 3, 9 through 20. Uh, again, this idea of finding refuge in the Lord uh, is brought up. The, the nations are called, uh, the nations are going to experience a change. For at that time, I will change the speech of peoples to a pure speech, that all may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So a call to the nations to seek the Lord. Uh, you can see that, you know, that verse 12, they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, so the nations can seek refuge in the Lord. The nation of Israel can seek refuge in the Lord. And we can see as we get into verse 14 through the end of the chapter that God's heart is for his people. Uh, God has always been present and caring and watching over his people, even during these times of rebuke and judgment. Uh, and I think that there is no uh, more beautiful verse in this section than verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And in the context of this book, in the context of the judgment that's coming to the nation, this reminder that God is rejoicing and singing over his nation with love. Uh, it's a beautiful picture of God's ultimate mercy as he deals with the sin and the rebellion that's been present uh, in not only the nation of Israel, but also the nations around him. The principle for this section is that God calls his people to take refuge in him. God calls his people to take refuge in him. Uh, I live here in the Midwest of the United States, and so uh, one of the things that we're, is going to start happening here in a couple weeks is we're going to be in tornado season. And so when the tornado siren sounds in our community, we know what to do. We head down to the basement. We, we seek shelter there because when the wind is blowing and it's knocking over trees and it's knocking over utility poles and it's blowing things around, 
being below ground, being in the basement is the right place to be. And there have been places in the Midwest that have been utterly destroyed with wind. And there have been very few casualties because, hey, people in the Midwest, they know what to do. Get down in the basement. Uh, It is the safest place to seek refuge during a windstorm. But you know what I don't know what to do during? Uh, Earthquakes. We just don't have a lot of those in the Midwest. And so if an earthquake was to come, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go to seek shelter, to seek refuge. Like, where am I supposed to go when the ground starts shaking? I don't know if the basement feels like the best place to be in that scenario, but that's going to be where my, my natural inclination is going to be to seek refuge in, in what I know is safe. And so I'm going to go to the basement during an earthquake, even though that might not be the right place to be. And I think what God is, is saying is that as this day of the Lord, this day that begins to unfold, this, this terrible day, this day of distress and day of anguish and day of ruin, the question is, where are you going to seek refuge? All the strategies that, that we have as people to seek refuge, you know, during windstorms or during earthquakes or during fires or during floods or during droughts, all the places that we go to are not going to work on the day of the Lord. And so the question that God is asking, where are you going to seek shelter uh, when the day of the Lord comes? And many people are going to go to the wrong place. They are not going to turn to the Lord. They're not going to look to him for a source of shelter, a source of protection. And so uh, it, it certainly feels like Zephaniah and Nahum are asking, when the, when the real crisis comes in your life, when the, when the real wind starts to rock your life in ways that you weren't expecting, where are you going to turn? Are we going to be in the habit of turning to God? Are, are we going to, are we going to have already known that, you know, when the little storms of life come, like we're already in the habit of turning to the Lord. We know where to go to seek shelter. Uh, or are we going to, are people going to be in a panic? Are they going to not know what to do because they've never sought the Lord? So when the, when the day of the Lord comes, when the major event comes, uh, are we going to know that God will keep us sheltered? And perhaps you're going to know that because God has sheltered you in some past storms in your life. And you can talk about that and say, yes, I have experienced God sheltering me in some of the smaller storms of life. And so I know that on that great day, God will provide shelter uh, when I seek refuge in him. Well, friends, uh, the reality is, is that at some point, that trend line that we were talking about is going to come to an end. Uh, the time that we have on this earth, and I have no idea when this is going to be, uh, the time that we have is going to come to a stop. And all of the, the, the ways that we thought our lives were going to unfold and that history was going to keep unfolding and humanity was going to keep doing humanity things, uh, it's all going to come to an end. Uh, the Lord is telling us that. In, in the book of Nahum and the book of Zephaniah, he's reminding us of that. Uh, the encouragement that we have, the direction that we have, is that God will provide shelter for his people at the end of that trend line. Are you and I willing to seek shelter with him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you offer a shelter not only for uh, the major storms of life, the day of the Lord, the, the major ending event, but you also provide shelter during wind and waves uh, and personal tragedy and difficulty and financial hardship, Lord. We can find shelter with you at all times. Lord, I pray that you would help us beat a path uh, to you. Help us begin to learn how to better seek refuge and shelter 
in your word, in your Holy Spirit, and in your Son, Jesus Christ, as we go through our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week.